1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm your host for the podcast. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'll be interviewing Christopher Browning, author of the book, Remembering Survival, Inside a Nazi Slave Labor Camp, published by Norton. This book seems like a departure for Browning, who is most widely known for his study of perpetrators. But as he suggests in the interview, Remembering survival is really a continuation of his practice of using case studies to try and understand the experience of the Holocaust. This time, he undertakes a deep examination of a specific labor camp in Poland. The result is analytically rich and emotionally moving. His narrative goes well beyond events to illuminate the actions and motivations both of the prisoners and those who guarded and exploited them. Browning speaks as carefully and thoughtfully as he writes. The resulting interview is rich, rich in discussions of the narrative itself, but also in terms of the methodology he used in crafting it. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did conducting it. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. For our listeners today, I'm interviewing Christopher Browning, author of a, a new or recent book titled Remembering Survival Inside a Nazi Slave Labor Camp. The book is a fascinating microhistory, a microhistory of a slave labor camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. Browning uses hundreds of interviews to try and understand what happened in the camps around the town, and I'm going to try and get this pronunciation right, and Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's is that correct? Very close, Starakowice. Okay, Starakowice. And and Chris uses this detailed case study to shed further light on our understanding of the experience of the camps and how they fit into the broader course of the final solution. It is, at the same time, an extended reflection on the problems of using testimony as historians as we try and reconstruct the past, and we'll hit on both of those subjects in the interview. Uh, and so, Chris, you've already kind of made your presence known, but um, welcome. Thanks so much for doing the interview. Yeah, my pleasure. Why don't we start um, just by asking you to tell us in the audience a little bit about who you are and how you ended up as an academic who studies the Holocaust.
0: Okay. Well, I'm a professor of history at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels. (laughs) And uh, I started history as an undergraduate. I guess that's the only major I seriously considered, uh, at least beginning in in sophomore year. Uh, Some question whether uh, I would have gone into Asian history or European, but my uh, language abilities weren't enough to cope with the thought of doing (laughs) Japanese or Chinese, and I'd already had some German and French. so. Uh, ended up doing the the European route. Uh, it wasn't until graduate school, in fact, uh, partly through graduate school, that I came to work on uh, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, and more widely than uh, the uh, the study of genocide. I did my M.A. in fact in French history, and then had to leave graduate school uh, during uh, in 1968 when graduate school deferments were revoked for people of my cohort during the Vietnam War uh and returned to graduate school three years later uh in the mean, in the meantime i in fact uh had read uh, several key books that, that really sort of changed my uh, my course of interest uh the first was Eichmann in Jerusalem, uh which uh, focused me uh, on or what was particularly fascinating to me in that book was the subtitle a Study in the Banality of Evil. And this was a period in which uh, I had just come off the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. I had been uh, moderately involved in the anti-war effort, campaigning for Eugene McCarthy in the spring primary uh, of 1968, Uh, and uh, a a book that talked about uh, a a notion that seemed to be relevant to those of us who were very disturbed about how our country had gotten involved in Vietnam and what it was doing there, Uh, in a sense, how did law-abiding citizens who think of themselves as, as, as good people uh, end up uh, creating or implementing terrible policies. Uh, and she kept referring to in terms of the Holocaust, uh, a book by Ralph Hilberg, and she occasionally admitted that she had consulted Ralph Hilberg's The Destruction of the European <laughs> Jews, uh, fascinated by the the the, the the topic in general, I ordered that book, uh, and uh, when it came, uh, I started to read it, and basically I couldn't put it down. I just uh, read it from cover to cover and uh, nonstop, and uh, had what amounted to an academic conversions experience. I mean, after that, there was just no way I was going back to do you know French diplomatic history, which I'd been doing in my master's. Uh, and went to my advisor at the University of Wisconsin, and said, "When I returned, I wanted to do something on the the Nazi persecution of the Jews." I don't think I even used the word Holocaust then; that was just coming in uh, as a usage. Uh, and uh, his his reply was twofold. Uh, the first was, well, that's a good dissertation topic. I explained what I wanted to do, which was my first book, a study of the uh, Jewish experts in the German Foreign Office and how mid-level bureaucrats uh, and in a seemingly uh, distant uh, agency from, from genocide, uh, diplomats, in fact, uh, became close. Uh, Uh, workers with Eichmann and extending Nazi persecution and deportation to German Allied and satellite countries. Uh, And I explained that that's the topic, I want a case study of, of this group. Uh, and he said, well, that's a very good dissertation topic, but I should keep in mind that had no professional future, <laughs> which in 1970 was, was, was a important professional warning. I mean, in 1970, mm-hmm. there were no classes on the Holocaust taught, no classes on genocide taught at universities, uh, that uh, there were no conferences to get papers at, uh, no journals to publish in, except Yad Vashem Studies coming out of Israel published to an annual, which was the only Publication dedicated at least to the study of the Holocaust, but he fortunately then said, "If that's what I really wanted to do, I should do it anyway because there was no fate worse than uh, spending five years of your life in something if your heart wasn't in it." And, and he was really very helpful and supportive. But he, and I think it was quite right, made sure I was aware that I was specializing in a field that, that didn't exist yet. That uh, that this was going to be an area that at the time simply didn't have any of the academic infrastructure. Uh, that legitimizes it as, as a as a subfield of European history or or, or uh, uh, you know of the, of the broader field. That changed when I you know by the late seventies. And In fact, uh, fortuitously, I, I got in on what we would now call an academic growth industry. I mean, the turn of Holocaust studies and genocide studies grew very rapidly in the eighties and nineties. But that wasn't the case when I when I first went in. But uh, so uh, my, my entry into the field was was fairly uh, accidental and uh, against the uh, more cautious advice, at least partially, of, of those who knew at least initially this was not uh, a particularly profitable field to
1: work in. And and your first. Set of books were were largely institutional studies or studies of perpetrators. Right, you you basically took it from the German perspective under trying to understand why the perpetrators did what they did and and how the final solution emerged.
0: Yes, I focused on on, on two issues. One was decision making. How was it that Mass murder, total systematic and total mass murder, genocide became the policy of the Nazi regime vis-a-vis the Jews of Europe, uh, and uh, how do we explain that taking place over time? Uh, and secondly, who were the people that implemented it? So there was a series of kind of case studies. And my mm-hmm. dissertation was, of course, on this collection of mid-level bureaucrats, uh, People that worked in Berlin in the Foreign Ministry, but I had other studies: the military occupation in Serbia, where this was the first country outside of the uh, Soviet Union uh, where uh, all the male Jews were shot, and in fact shot by the German army, not by the SS, mm-hmm. all of 1941. Uh, work on the sort of the mechanics who crew design and construct the gas van. Uh, work on the ghetto managers, who were the ones who very young. People in their late 20s, early 30s, who are running uh, the Polish ghettos with you know tens and hundreds, in the case of Warsaw, hundreds of thousands of people under their control, uh, who were, they were the master of life and death over, even though they. Uh, have barely held a job in their life and are sort of coming hmm. out of Germany uh, with, uh, with uh, very little experience. Uh, and uh, these are not, at that point, considered your plum jobs uh, to be left running Jewish ghettos. Uh, and, and so I was looking at, at, at various kinds of perpetrators and, of course, then hit upon uh, the, the court case that led to the study of Reserve Police Battalion 101, this collection of 500 middle-aged German reservists from Hamburg in North Germany uh, that became a killing unit in Poland that I, that I wrote about in a book called Ordinary Men. Mm-hmm. So there was a series of case studies of different kinds of perpetrators and uh, side by side with that uh, research into the decision-making process and particularly, how did it come about that they reached the decision for the final solution?
1: So this book is different. This is a study of, of the victims. Um, a micro-history of, of a labor camp. How did you end up deciding to write this one?
0: Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it's still the case study model. That is the, the mm-hmm. genre, uh, like ordinary men or, or the, the bureaucrats, of the foreign office. I'm, I'm taking the approach that if you can find a whole lot about a very small group of people that you can get to know well, you can illuminate much wider questions uh, much better than if you're trying to look from the top down. Uh, and And so, the approach is the same, but, as you say, it's a very different set of sources and a very different topic uh- Actually, I came to both Ordinary Men and to the factory slave labor camps in Strakowice at the very same time. I spent a summer of 1987 in the town of Ludwigsburg, which is where the Central Agency for the Investigation of Nazi Crimes is located. And I was looking through all of their cases that related to Poland. Uh, I was working on my on my bigger book on the origins of the Final Solution, and I, I feeling that half the victims of the Holocaust are Polish Jews, but nothing like half the documents uh, relate to Poland. Poland is a underdocumented and understudied, or at that point, was an underdocumented, and understudied aspect of the of the Holocaust, so the centrality of Poland. To the Holocaust, I don't think at that point in time had been uh, fully uh, explained. We had monographs on Jews in Denmark and the Netherlands and France and whatever, uh, but uh, but Poland is uh, you know just dwarfed every other country in Europe in terms of its centrality to the to the Holocaust. So I wanted to fill in all the gaps by looking at every indictment and judgment of a case relating to the killing of Jews in Poland. And that's where I came across the, the, the trial of the uh, officers of the Zürich Police Battalion 101. But it's also where I came across the trial of Walter Becker, who is the police mm-hmm. captain in Strakowice, who cleared the ghetto, uh, sent 4,000 people to Treblinka without a single survivor, and sent 1,600 Jews to three work camps in, in Strakowice, uh, where uh, a cluster uh, managed to survive, testified against. Becker in court in the 1970s, uh, but with a judge who had absolutely total disregard for survivor testimony, uh, acquitted Becker uh, completely. Uh, and it was really uh, the, uh, my, uh, I guess I can use it, uh, you know, historians are supposed to be objective, but my outrage at the egregious <laughs> miscarriage of justice, my first reaction was, 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 was emotional. I, I just thought this was the most outrageous. I've seen many bad German court cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of Nazi crowd, and this just eclipsed them all. This was the single most egregious, outrageous miscarriage of justice that I had read uh, and i said i 've got to study this i 've got to find out what went on uh, and uh, that was my in a sense my my, my initial uh initial spur to it was to was to do dirt on Walter becker uh, to to expose him <laughs> uh and you know, it, it, you know to put him in historian's hell i i you know, I could put him between two book covers on in a in li- and a book that would sit on the you know library shelves forever, even if he never served a day in prison mm-hmm. uh, so that's how I came to it, but it was uh part of a, a spin off an accidental spin off of working on another project. In which at least I had my eyes open to two other possibilities, and I' say the two spinoffs were ordinary men and remembering survival, mm-hmm. and both of them coming from the, the, the discoveries in the very same summer, were two very different but two absolutely intriguing cases that promised to be illuminating of much of much wider issues than the particular small unit or incident or or camps that they covered
1: yeah i I I frequently talk to people who are not professional historians who who seem to think that we have some kind of plan for our research lives, and we step one step after another step after another step, and eventually we get to the end of our list and we're done. And and I'm always amazed by how often the, the really important or really interesting research happens as a result of something you saw in a paragraph in one document that you kind of decided you wanted to spend a day looking at and then it became a week and a month and turns into a completely different project. Yeah, the most your or, sources. Most, yeah, go ahead.
0: Sorry, the most you you can't anticipate in a sense what are going to be the most original uh, or, or or pioneering mm-hmm. works because they haven't been studied yet, and so you, in a sense you have to you have to fall into them. Uh, you have to come across a particular document or instrument that grabs you, and and then follow it, and uh, and in a sense part of it is is luck and part of it is receptivity. Part of it is being ready to. Pick up the windfalls that 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 are there uh, when you're going through the archives on some other project. But, but these are uh, the collateral benefits uh, that that fall your way if if you're aware of the if you're out on you know sensitive to and ready to grab
1: new things and new possibilities when they appear. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that struck me about John Dower's book, whose name is slipping my mind, but about race and culture in the Pacific War.
0: War and he makes,
1: yes, yeah. exactly. And he makes the comment that, that that book emerged out of a paragraph he was writing in a different book, and he just had to follow it. It's hard for graduate students and, and people looking for tenure to do that, of course, because they're on a timeline. But I'm really struck by the kind of sources you're using. And so I'm wondering if you could say something a little about the records that you're using and, and the opportunities and challenges that exist in using those kind of survivor testimonies. Yeah. Uh,
0: certainly, in terms of, of say, the, the, and what I was working in was, of course, German trial records. And, and mm-hmm. basically, there are three groups of, of evidence that those trials work with. One are the contemporary German documents that the German perpetrators themselves produced, their reports, their orders, uh, their uh, the, uh, recommendations and, and, and memos and that sort of thing. Uh, the second is their post-war testimony in which they are interrogated about what they've done. Uh, and this, of course, was the main basis for Reserve Police Battalion 1, so the ordinary men. It was the 210 testimonies of the members of the battalion itself uh, that formed the core of, of, my, of my evidence there. In the Hamburg trial of Strakowice, uh, there were very few Germans interrogated, uh, and they lied terribly, and there were virtually no <laughs> documents at all. But because it had been a labor camp that permitted, uh, an unusual cluster of survivors, uh, you know, to get through the war, uh, there were dozens of, of Jewish witnesses in the courtroom, uh, who gave testimony. And so I started with, uh, an investigation at Ludwigsburg, where I had over 120 uh, depositions or interviews that German judicial investigators had taken in the pre-trial preparation in which they were looking for who would they bring to the courtroom as a witness. Now, many of these people, they didn't bring to the courtroom, but they were still testifying about their experiences during war and, and very important information for me as an historian, even if not all of them were giving Usable evidence against Becker for the particular charges that he was facing. So I started with a with 125 Testimonies taken in the 1960s 20 years after the events I was studying conducted interviews conducted by German lawyers with Jewish survivors Uh, and they were interviews, of course, for a particular purpose. The Germans were looking for usable evidence. They weren't historians. They weren't seeking uh, wider, you know, information about wider issues of the Jewish Council, uh, of uh, the dynamics within the Jewish community. They wanted to know what Becker and other Germans had done, uh, and uh, so that they could bring people in to testify to particular German actions. But simply in, in answering the German questions, of course, uh, they couldn't help but portray and and paint a a, a somewhat broader picture. That's where I got the idea that there must be more testimonies out there. And if I could supplement the testimonies given to the Germans for German judicial purposes with sets of testimonies that were told as life stories, as Jews telling survivors, telling the stories of their family, of their own experiences, uh, not for judicial purposes, but to basically uh, simply, uh preserve in effect uh their their past experience uh i might find all sorts of additional things and what surprised me was just how many other testimonies that were out there fortunately this project began just as the spielberg uh uh project was winding down but as after schindler's list uh, spielberg helped to finance a foundation the visual history archive that was going to Ultimately, collect 52,000 videotape testimonies, mostly survivors, a few others, uh, and it turned out that that a, that a whole other group of about 120 of these were struck and survivors. Uh, now, some of them uh, were the same that had that had uh, given testimonies in, in in to the Germans earlier, but that was it was very important for me to see how they told their story under German questioning and how they told their story to the camera. Uh, 20 or 30 years later, when they could tell the story as they wanted to, not simply answering questions that somebody else had their judicial agenda for. And then it turned out there were lots of other pockets of testimonies. The Holocaust Museum in DC had some, Yad Vashem in Israel had some. Uh, the Poles, who, the, the Jewish survivors in Poland immediately after the war, in what later became the Jewish Historical Institute, which still exists in Warsaw, mm-hmm. uh, conducted a number of testimonies, a, a number of interviews with survivors, and uh, there were seven or eight uh, Strakovica survivors there. So I would have testimonies that stretched all the way from 1945, 46 up to the Spielberg ones that were being taken in the last half of the 1990s. Uh, And in the end, I came up with uh, with 292 different people that gave one or more testimonies about their experience. Uh, And then after that, I was able to make contact with the uh, survivor community in Toronto, the largest group of Strakovitsa survivors emigrated to Toronto, a kind of chain immigration that is. after some came, then others followed. Uh, and they still had their survivor community there and uh, basically met monthly. Fortunately, I was able to have an entree to the man who was the head of that group. Uh, he invited me to come and meet with them. And then I got a series of my own interviews in which I can interview people uh, personally, face-to-face, uh, on top of having already seen, for the most part, their Spielberg tapes, or their uh, German courtroom testimony, or both, uh, and pursue much more deeply uh, uh, aspects of their testimony that I that I wanted to, as an historian, not just as a collector of testimonies or as a German judicial investigator.
1: Hmm. And you you say a lot in the book, and. and... You comment throughout the book about the, the, the challenges and opportunities of, of using this testimony, and I think it's a wonderful book to use in historiography class, for instance, for undergraduates or graduates. I, I want to ask you just about a couple specifics. One of them, you, you observed in the book that you were a little bit surprised that the various communities uh, of survivors seemed not to have shaped their memories in a way that's different from communities um, always away from them, that there's not a distinctive memory – set of memory communities found whose memories of the events were different. Um, Why – what – why is that? What's going on with that, that that didn't happen?
0: Yeah. What I thought was that over time, the group of survivors in Toronto and the group of survivors in Israel and the more scattered survivors in the United States would meet with each other but not have a lot of contact across those lines and that each would develop its own kind of homogenized version uh, in which different memories would get ironed out and a kind of standard collective memory for that particular community would emerge, and that I would get increasingly homogenized uh, stories within the community, and they would increasingly diverge from the others who, who, uh, uh, you know, were, were living thousands of miles away. I think what it, the fact that that didn't happen, uh, and that uh, the core memory uh, is basically the same everywhere and the varieties of different memories and different perspectives have been preserved and not been smoothed out and homogenized. Uh, I think it does say something to the, uh, to the stability uh, of memory, uh, that people uh, who have formulated their memory and told their story Uh, don't change it that much thereafter. Uh, That is in fact, human memory is not as malleable as I had thought. I don't think it's quite as uh, influenced by outside factors uh, to to be rewritten uh, simply uh, to uh, to make it uh, more sanitized uh, and then so I was uh, that was one of the one of the surprises and I would say one of the pleasant surprises because it helped to validate uh, the usefulness uh, of testimony uh, when one could document that people who gave testimony in the 60s were telling the same story in the in the 90s and that people who gave early testimonies in the 1945. We're not telling an utterly different story than people who were telling this story 50 years later when I was interviewing them. Uh, that uh, that the uh, there's obviously many many different stories and different perspectives and individual memories, but the core memory uh, was very stable. Uh, and and I thought that that uh, was 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 an important thing to be able to document. Yeah. Why it's then, that way, I don't yeah. know, other than it surprised me, because I thought memory would be more fragile, more malleable, uh, more changeable in response to, to outside factors.
1: Sure. And the one place you do see that, as you pointed out in the book, is is the way in which at particular points in time, the kind of visual or narrative images or tropes of the Holocaust, the, the, the images in movies or in pictures or the way in which stories are told in the popular or the widely read memoirs, some of those things do seep into the memory of the survivors. Yeah.
0: I would, I would say there's two places where one can see the outside interference very clearly. Mm -hmm. One is where they are very dominant tropes or visual images that are sort of enshrined as as iconic. Mm -hmm. So once – I mean as long as people are in Strakovica, they're in an obscure labor camp that no one has ever heard of. Uh, and uh, they aren't in anybody's memoirs. You know, they're not in an e. Elie Wiesel memoir. They're not in somebody's documentary. They're not on the Hitler Channel or the History Channel. I <laughs> <My laughs> guess that was really <laughs> to it. uh, uh they, they 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 aren't getting a somebody else's version of their own story. Now, once the survivors are evacuated from the Straußviertel labor camp and go to Auschwitz. Then what you see is the intrusion of lots of very common notions of what the standard Auschwitz story is, because they have a very atypical Auschwitz story. Uh, and some of them do not sustain the atypical Auschwitz story that they experienced and in fact change their story to adapt to and make it like what everybody else experienced. Most everybody that came to Auschwitz arrives at the ramp, there is a selection and uh, many people are sent to the gas chambers and the minority is sent into the work camps. Because this was viewed as a transfer between labor camps because they were coming from one labor camp into Birkenau uh, there was no selection, uh, they all went into the camp, uh, but uh, nonetheless a significant number of people still testify to the standard Auschwitz story. They got off the train, there was Mengele pointing left, left right, and some went to the gas chambers and some went into the camps. Uh, we know that's a false story because many people within the prisoner community that was transferred were children. Uh, and they're perfectly aware that they're alive because of the miracle that there was no no selection. <laughs> uh, they were, they know they wouldn't be alive if there had been a selection. Uh, and uh, and and so uh, we we can we can test and and make reasonable judgments as to which is the false memory and which is the true memory. And the atypical story is the true one. And the 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 adaptation or the incorporation of post-war images and post-war accounts into people's memories is the minority story. Uh, And I have no doubt that people believe it. I mean, I I have no Mm -hmm. doubt they're not being perfectly sincere, but uh, they have simply, uh, in a sense, merged their own story with what has become the iconic standard story, whether it be Elie Wiesel or Primo Levi or any other number of famous memoirs that account, that tell how you arrive in Auschwitz. Now, the the other case where post-war environment greatly shapes the story is not from the war years, but from the pre-war years in this little town Hmm. of the which is the small half-Jewish town adjacent to the small industrial town of Strakovitsa, which is where all the Jews live. Uh, The uh, description that is given by the survivors who have come to the United States and to Canada is basically that this was a sleepy, uh, backward... Town of very uh, conservative, traditional Orthodox Jews uh, that uh, they you know spoke Yiddish. It was a typical uh, Polish pre-war Jewish community of a small uh, small town, nearly rural kind of setting. If one goes to Israel. The accounts there are that this is a hotbed of Zionism. They had all sorts hmm. of youth meetings. There were Zionist soccer teams and Zionist discussion groups, and they were all following Jabotinsky, uh, and uh, that uh, they have uh, shed the image of the backward diaspora Polish Jew to become the brave new Zionist pioneer, which is necessary, in a sense, to get credibility in Israel, uh, to, to be having been, in a sense, on the right side of the Zionist, Zionist non-Zionist division among European Jews, and they have in effect rewritten their history uh, to uh, be on the winner side, at least within the environment of, of, of Israel, or at least to overest- over something overemphasize that side and to muchly much downplay what, at least in Israel society in the 50s and 60s, was pretty denigrated and looked down on. Uh, which was the you know the the, the passive diaspora uh, Yiddish speaking traditional Orthodox Jews who were, didn't have a clue what was happening and basically uh, didn't respond in this militant and heroic and uh, uh, way that uh, Sabra soldiers in the wars of independence in Israel were doing uh, and and so they wanted to in a sense reposition themselves to be part of the uh, of the Zionist tradition as opposed to the diaspora tradition.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned the community, <coughs> excuse me, of yeah. Um Let's start. Let's let's move to that then, and, and their experience in here, because the the Jews aren't moved immediately into a labor camp. They spend oh a couple years or so in in the ghetto. Um, what is that? How typical is their ghetto experience, and how did that? ghettoization fit into the broader Nazi uh, agenda or purpose for um, the Jews in Poland? Yeah,
0: actually there's there's, in a sense three stage stages. First you have mm-hmm. the Nazis arrive in 39 and there's a whole series of discriminatory measures uh, in which they are grabbing Jewish property, uh, seizing Jews off the streets to uh, put them to various kinds of... of Fairly useless, but humiliating and denigrating labor—kind of rituals of humiliation, uh, or menial labor, shovel snow off the streets, uh, pick up rubble—and uh, often made to do it in their, uh, you know, picked up when they're going to to synagogue, so they're in their Shabbat finery uh, to make it even much more humiliating that they would have to uh, do this uh, as visibly, you know, dressed as as, as Orthodox Jews. Uh, then you have the period of ghettoization, which happens in different places, different at different times in different places in Poland. Southern Poland, South Central Poland where this is, is sort of the last stage of ghettoization and doesn't happen, in fact, until the spring of 1941. Hmm. Uh, and it is uh, when the, the Germans are, are preparing, uh, lots of German troops are moving in to prepare for the invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, and of course, there are shortages of housing and everything else, uh, that that in those areas, they would then force the Jews to move into much smaller areas. Poles could be then shifted to areas Jews had left and the Germans could pick all the best stuff for themselves. So you had a kind of musical chairs uh, game. In which no one is left standing, but the Jews are left over, immensely overcrowded mm-hmm. uh, in, in just a few designated areas. Uh, and again, the, the ghettos came in different shapes. The most, you know, the iconic ghettos, Lodz, uh, Wizj, and Warsaw, uh, have the walls and the barbed wire. They're sealed off. They're hermetically sealed ghettos. Many of the smaller ghettos, including the are what we call open ghettos there is no wall they post uh uh placards around saying Jews cannot move beyond this point unless they have a pass or a permit uh but uh they aren't walled in. other people can come in to them and buy and sell they cannot go out to work on the black market without great risk uh but the germans do not they, ex- they want to go through the expenditure of building walls to to create a, a ghetto in a small town like thebstadt with a the community of of uh, of uh, five or five and a half thousand Jews, uh, so uh, it is a less onerous ghetto than Warsaw because it's much easier to uh, operate off the black market. People can come into the so-called Jewish area even if Jews are not supposed to leave, and of course it's easier mm-hmm. for Jews to leave illegally than this if they have to get over a wall or through a barbed wire fence. Uh, so it, it, is, it is a ghetto, uh, but it is not a, a walled or it's not a sealed ghetto. Is the t- term that, that the was often used, a so- so-called open ghetto. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what that initially was to do was, of course, both to keep the Jews out of control, and move them away from their previous businesses and homes so all of that could be confiscated, uh, and to separate them from the Polish population. What it turned out to be, of course, was also a very important urban internment camp that was the ideal staging ground to deport people's death camps once that's the solution they decided upon. So it's a case where a, a policy adopted for one purpose turns out to be ideal for a second purpose, and that is as the concentration of Jews uh, at a where at a place where they can now be shipped off uh, to the death camps for mass murder, and that of course begins the liquidation of Polish ghettos. Basically, takes place in '42. So the Vietnam Ghetto actually survives a year and a half from the spring of 41 to the fall of 42. October 27, 1942 is the day they come to liquidate the Vietnam Ghetto, send 4,000 people to Treblinka and 1,600 people into the labor camps.
1: So how did the Jewish community during this time, first of um, kind of increasingly – increasing legal and practical limitations on the freedom and then ghettoization. How do they adapt to that experience and try and uh, survive and prepare for survival.
0: Yeah, initially they they often try to continue what they were doing before. But if you can't have bank accounts and you can't uh, shop except at certain uh, you know limited hours and so forth, it's pretty hard to run businesses uh, when uh, when you don't have capital and you don't have banks, uh, and uh, then particularly when it's limited as to where you can even go. So people who initially tried to to continue to to be the artisans and the craftsmen that they were before, or who try to invent something that they're going to produce and and, and sell, increasingly shift to working for the German occupier. And Hmm. what distinguishes Strakowice is it was a place where the Polish government after World War I constructed a munitions factory. It already was a pioneer in one having the very earliest uh, 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 iron ore uh smelters uh and was the beginning of, of a of, of early Polish industrialization. Uh and then the, the the Germans added a munitions factory to make uh casings for for shells and grenades and so forth. Uh using of course uh the steel the, the steel that's being produced just in the town. So that would that you had a local production of the of the Raw materials that you're going to use to make to make the munitions. So for 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 the Jews of Vienshneck, fortuitously, they are in a place where there is a clearly central uh, munitions factory the Germans have taken over and which is producing for the German army. And it is very quick that they perceive uh, as they or I should say as they begin to perceive the, the difficulty not only that they have to earn a living but that ghettos potentially may be liquidated that the single best survival strategy is to get a job in the factories working for the Germans. Hmm. Now the Germans realize this too and the corruption in the German occupation regime is so pervasive uh, that the Germans then uh, basically sell work permits to work in the factory and there's all sorts of people in the German factory who have the right to hire people are going to extort Jews in order to to hire them. Uh, So that uh, in the end, when the Jews buy their permits to get into the factories and eventually from the factories into the work camp, they are buying themselves into slavery. Uh, this, I know it's a strange concept that you buy your slavery, but uh, <laughs> this is the this is the measure of how extreme the situation was for Polish Jews that the best survival strategy is to pay somebody else to make you their slave, uh, and, and that in a sense is the is the, the main survival strategy, the main response that, that Jews and the Jews in the Urpshnik follow is to become a essential source of labor for the German steel mill and for the German munitions factory, and then the third camp in town is the lumber yard where they're making the crates in which the bullets and grenades are going to be shipped. So you have a lumber yard, a steel mill, and a munitions factory, the three focal points and the three camps into which the Jews eventually will go uh, in October of 1942 when the, when the ghetto was liquidated and they are relocated to, to, to live in a, in a work camp setting as opposed to, to the ghetto. And there, of course, they are sealed off. There they are fences and guards, uh, unlike the ghetto, which was an open ghetto.
1: Yeah. And it, it, although one of the things that really stri- – and let's move on then to this period in, in, in the work camps. One of the things that really struck me is while there, they were sealed, there seems to have been an extraordinary kind of churn as people went uh, – well, a couple ways. One ways. One is that prisoners or other people came into the camps – uh, but another is that there seems to have been a certain a kind of permeability of these borders that people seem to be able to, to go for a day or two to town to recover valuables or to make connections and then come back into the camp. But I was really startled by that.
0: Yeah. Um, certainly, these are not SS concentration camps. These are camps that are built by the factory management which is the, the, the condition they had to meet in order to keep their labor. Himmler wants to destroy all Jews, and he makes an exception that some crucial Jewish workers can be left and spared temporarily if the factory owners who want to employ them will build camps, guard them, keep them apart from the Polish population, and if they will rent their slaves from the SS. And that's why I deliberately use the term not forced labor here but slave labor. These people mm-hmm. are the property of the SS and they are rented on a contractual basis to the factory owners at a per head, per day, hmm. fixed price and so they are property. Uh, and the factory owners pay for them but they don't pay the worker, they pay the owner, which is the SS. So the SS makes money renting their slaves to the factory. Other people in the factory have already made money by selling work permits to the Jews. So basically, uh, the Jews, both as a object of extortion and then as a product, as a producer of slave labor, uh, is filling German pockets in a number of ways, uh, and and which is part of why uh, a cluster of them can survive. Uh, but when they're in the factory camps, as I say, these are not SS camps. They are not well-guarded. They don't have to be well-guarded. Remember, people are paying to get into them because to be outside them is to be at total risk of being, denun- being denounced, uh, and that means instant death or being put on the next train to, to a camp where you'll be killed. Uh, and that the labor camps are considered the safe havens. Uh, this is where you have a chance at prolonging your life. The risk outside the camp is far higher than the risk inside the camp, uh, so they don't have to be well-guarded. And the way in which people leave, uh, they can, in fact, usually cut deals with uh, the the camp guards, bribe them uh, to go out at night uh, and to contact friends and acquaintances where they've left property, uh, get some of that or make deals on the black market, and then come back into the camp uh, which is, as I say, their safe haven. Uh, it wasn't hard to escape. What was hard was to survive having escapes. Uh, and the survival rate on the outside is very low, uh, and much lower than survival rate on the inside. So there are guards, but the guards mainly serve as the people who will march them to the factories, from the camp to the factories and back, uh, and to keep the illegals out. People trying to slip into the camps, uh, the guards are as much there to, to keep them out as they are to keep huh. people in.
1: Yeah, I, one of the things that, that just instantly struck me was about the, the, the composition of the population of the camp was the fact that there are children in this camp.
0: Yes, there are, it becomes a de facto family camp. That certainly was not the German design. Mm-hmm. But children come into the camp by two ways. One are, is, is a legal way. That is, certain very valued craftsmen who are going to be set in a different barracks and live better uh, by producing luxury goods for the German occupier, uh, gold workers, leather workers, tailors who are producing fancy uniforms custom-made for you know, the German occupiers, will be treated better, live in a different, better area, and the top craftsmen will be allowed to bring their family and their children in. Uh, and so that they that's one set of what we would call privileged prisoners. And then the Germans also work with a group of prisoners who basically run the camp council and the camp police. These are not the same people who ran the Jewish council in the ghetto, uh, mm-hmm. but are more, uh, I guess, have already had a record of, of, of a degree of collaboration with the German occupiers, uh, and this is very typical of how Germans ran camps. So you have a divide and divided rule. You have privileged prisoners who dominate the unprivileged prisoners, saves the the, the Germans all sorts of manpower, uh, and uh, that. The privileged prisoners keep their privileges as long as they dominate and master and control the unprivileged. And again, the head of the, uh, of the, of the police, of the top policemen and the, uh, top council members are allowed to bring in family as well. So you have the, the, the exceptional children that come in, uh, legally, uh, as part of the deal in the sense they cut with the people selected to be their privileged prisoners then over time, people who had bought work permits for their families, for themselves, you know, for their husband, for the wife, the teenage children, if they had really young children, they knew they couldn't buy them work permits. And so those ones, uh, the young children, either got sent off to Toblinka with the grandparents, mm-hmm. which was not untypical. Families got separated on the day of the ghetto clearance. When everybody with work permits went to one side of the market square, and everybody would out them on the other. And so mother and father and older kids would go one way, and grandparents and younger kids would be sent the mm-hmm. other way. But if you had enough money and enough contacts and could find someone to, to pay to hide your children, Children were placed in hiding outside, uh, but that was very risky. And once the situation in the camp settled down, it became clear to many that their children would be safer in the camp, even as illegals, than continuing to try to hide on the outside. And so they'd be smuggled into the camp. Uh, And the estimate was there were probably 60 or 70 children in the camp. Hmm. Uh, And uh, they had hiding places for them to place them when inspection came. uh, And that worked except on one occasion when when some were caught. Uh, And, of course, they paid uh, Germans bribes to tip them off when the inspectors were coming. Uh, and, And part of what made the camp work was this intense network of bribery between uh, the Jewish population and the very corrupt German occupation uh, where once again any way to, to fill their pockets uh, was, was grabbed at with alacrity. Uh, the, uh, the greed in, uh, on the part of the German occupiers seemed just to be you know bottomless uh, and one of the few pieces of leverage Jewish prisoners otherwise powerless had uh, was basically to bribe uh, because that was one thing Germans were very susceptible to.
1: Yeah, one of the, one of the things I noticed is, is you commented that as, as survivors remembered the camp, they did so not in terms of months or years, but in terms of the particular German leaders who were were in a position to to deal directly with the prisoners and how the individual ideas and idiosyncrasies and, and personalities of those Germans really affected the living conditions in those camps
0: yeah the the period in the camps is divided into the eras of the different commandants and so the first commandant is the really killer commandant and the first months are really a bloodbath in the camp uh, and uh, that uh then the factory management begins to understand that uh, that uh, Jewish labor can't be replaced and they, they 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 get rid of the killer commandant. He's basically fired mm. and sent away. And the uh, man who is one of the most corrupt comes in. Uh, and it, it sounds very strange, but this uh, the, of course the, the, the survivors remember this incident very you know, electrifyingly. Uh, he comes to the camp and gives a speech and says, you know, we're not going to kill sick Jews anymore as long as you work loyally. Uh, you'll be allowed to live. Uh, and he begins to take payments, for instance, to, to give warning when inspectors are coming. Uh, and the death rates in the camp drop way down. And that's when they begin to smuggle children back into the camp once once the, the death rates have dropped and the killer commandant has been sent away. And then there's a second commandant who's who's also, uh, well, none of the commandants are, are nice people, mind you, uh, but they are certainly remembered by degrees of corruption and degrees of brutality and, and lethalness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically it is the the, the the corrupt Germans that are the ones that they can work with and, it's, of course, the, the murderous ones that they have to steer very wide of
1: and and there were a few germans who were known as as i don't know if good people is too far but at least people who who were not actively trying to oppress or destroy the Jewish population. Is that right?
0: Yes. Basically, when you look at the, at the vocabulary the the survivors use and how they describe Germans, they, have, they, they basically fall into three groups. They're the dangerous Germans, which are like the mm-hmm. killer commandant and, and his group. They are the corruptible Germans who they make deals with. And then there's a the small group they refer to as the decent Germans. Hmm. Uh, and, and these are people uh, that uh, don't mistreat them, uh, that uh, basically uh, will cut them a lot of slack, uh, treat them, you know, don't humiliate them, uh, and so that they can work with a certain amount of dignity, a certain amount of security. Uh, and of course, they know who these are because it's very crucial. If, you know, if you're injured on the job. Uh, you've got to get assigned to one of the people who will let you, you know, sweep with a broom instead of lifting, you know, heavy uh, mm-hmm. boxes of, of, of shells. Uh, and and so uh, the the small number who they referred to as the decent Germans uh, were were known and were were very important because they were a kind of refuge within the wider system, and you could shift people there uh, when it when they had to be basically protected uh so so they were even within the even within the factory uh uh even with changing commandants, there's still these these uh, you know little areas uh where the particular foreman uh or 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 so is is someone uh who is much better to work for than someone else
1: and so these slave labor camps survive for not quite two years, and then. The Jews, or many of the Jews, are deported. What, what happens that these camps are liquidated?
0: Well, uh, the, the Russian army, of course, you know, stops the Germans at, at Stalingrad in, in February of 1943, and then the last German counteroffensive, which is totally stopped in its tracks, and at the Battle of Kursk in the summer of 43. Thereafter, the German, the Red Army, begins a kind of relentless series of offensives to drive the Germans out. Uh, and, uh, it is the spring-summer offensive of 1944 that sweeps them into Poland and up to the Vistula River. Uh, and so they stopped just short of Warsaw, where at least it's very probable Stalin was happy to stop to let the Nazis repress the the Polish uprising, uh, before the the Soviet, you know, the Red Army comes in. But stopping at the Vistula also meant they stopped short of Strakowice. Uh, and uh, that gave time for uh, the uh, people there to carry out a planned evacuation. So the last thing the prisoners do is dismantle the factory equipment and put it on trains in July of 1944, and then on July 28th, the very end of the month, they themselves are put on the train and sent to Birkenau, uh, and that's where they move directly from the Strakowice labor camp into the Beer Canal labor camp with atypically without a, a selection because it's not they are officially all laborers. It isn't known mm-hmm. they're a de facto family camp and that there are lots of children and, and so forth. Uh, and uh and uh so that's the end of the of the of the factory slave efforts. They're now into the domain of the SS. Birkenau, of course, is the uh, part of the whole Auschwitz-Birkenau complex, uh, the largest SS camp complex uh, in Europe. Uh, and they have, uh, however, an advantage. That is, uh, two, two the two advantages. One is they go in without a selection, and secondly, uh, they go in with advantages over the other new prisoners coming in. The one set of new prisoners coming into Birkenau at that time were Hungarian Jews, and they have been living off in Hungary, uh, not ghettoized and deported until very recently. They have no knowledge of how to survive in a camp uh, that uh, if you read Elie Wiesel, for instance, this is a classic example of mm-hmm. of, of a, uh, somebody living in the Hungarian area, rounded up in May of '44, shipped into to Birkenau, and, and they have to learn how to survive as prisoners. The Strakowice people already know how to survive as prisoners. They've had nearly two years of experience within the camp setting. Uh, and the other group that's coming in are the Jews being evacuated from, from Uh And they come in, and there they have a starvation regime that leaves them far more malnourished than the, the Jews of Strakowice, who simply have more, 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 more reserves, uh, that, they, that they haven't been starved within the age within the of their life. So uh, uh, the death rates among the Starakovica prisoners is, in fact, not that high. Uh, They don't die off nearly as fast as the Hungarian Jews or the Woods Jews, uh, and uh, that uh, they adapt to Birkenau uh, fairly well. The real lethal end chapter is the death marches. The evacuation of Birkenau in January, middle of winter, January 45, when the Red army renews its its final offensive that will take it all the way to berlin uh they have these panicked uh hurried uh, forced march evacuations from these camps uh and uh it both from Hatbeer back into Germany, and then once in Germany, from one camp to another as the Red Army approaches, in which the, the death rates are extremely high because uh, the, the, the food supply, of course, is broken down. These camps to which they moved into will just overwhelm the floods of prisoners far beyond. I mean, they were terrible places to begin with, and then the situation there is just aggravated exponentially when you dump you know, tens of thousands of Jews from Poland onto them uh, and the infrastructure just collapses. So that the the, the last real spike in death rates uh, comes uh, January and then again in March, April uh, during the so-called death marches. And those are what, uh, are what are very difficult to survive. They survive beer canal much better than they do the death marches.
1: Hmm. And so what happens to them when the war is done? Uh,
0: when the war is done, uh, there is, uh, you know, basically people had two options. One is to remain in the DP camps in Germany and wait to get emigration to either the Palestine mandate, which will become Israel in 48, but isn't at that point, uh, which the British are not anxious to have many come. They had a very strict, you know, limit um, legal emigration into Palestine. Uh, or to one of the countries that will take people out of the DP camps. And, of course, the Americans eventually do drop our very stringent 1930s immigration laws. Uh, and under Truman, it is opened up to to bring in a large number of DPs. Uh, Canada, which had, had almost no immigration in the 30s, does bring in and allow uh, Jewish DP immigration uh, into Canada, which is where the largest contingent of Strakowice people go. The other option, rather than waiting in a DP camp for your turn to go somewhere, uh, is to go back to Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for many, in fact, that was the agreement within the family that whoever survives, come back to Wierbznik, uh and we'll all meet there. Uh, and if you want, you don't know, uh, once, once they're evacuated from or uh, once they're evacuated from Birkenau, they're dispersed to different places and, and families get split up. And so, for many, it was they felt it absolutely mandatory to go back to the Erzincan on the hope that somebody else in the family had survived and they will find them there. Uh, and that is the last uh, extraordinarily tragic chapter in the story, uh, because as these survivors trickle in from camps uh, where they have been liberated begin to cluster uh, in in Diebznik. The situation in Poland is one in which the Red Army has come as imposing a communist regime. Uh, There is a latent state of civil war. Uh, The Polish underground, which had uh, been fighting the Germans to some extent, is now fighting the the Red Army. And in their mind, uh, and this comes out of The variety, you know, the vagaries of Polish history, uh, the Jews are seen as allies of and sympathetic to the Red Army, because for Poles and, for Jews in Poland, the Red Army was a liberator. For the Poles in Poland, it's a substitute conqueror. Uh, and, uh, there's no question that Jews much preferred the Red Army to the Nazi Army, while the Poles they were, you know, a plague on both your houses. <laughs> so that, uh, for, for Poles, the return of Jews to Strakowice represented one, the threat that they would take back property that Poles have now moved into houses and taken over things, and two, will be sympathetic to the communists. Uh, and the result is, uh, that, uh, a, uh, and in there, there are different branches of the Polish underground, including, uh, a very, very anti Semitic, uh, fairly fascistic uh, group uh, and uh, that had fairly strong in this area. This is not far from Kielce where the great Kielce program takes place Mm -hmm. uh, in the summer of 1946. Uh, And the result is long before the Kielce program there is a massacre of Jews in the That uh, a small group of uh, Polish underground come into town uh, look at where the, the Jews are living and one night go out and shoot a bunch and then there are various other killings that take place and and basically the Jews in Vierbyshnik then jump on the train and flee and the last Jews to die in Vierbyshnik are killed by their Polish neighbors not by the Nazis and it is the end of basically the Jewish community in Vierbyshnik uh, and they, many of them, flee back first to Lodz and then to Germany, and they go back to to the land of, to, of the of the genocidal murder to Germany to be safe in Germany. Uh, and I mean the twist in this, where you know you're safer inside the labor camp than yeah. outside, you're safer in Germany than you are in Poland. Uh, it, you have to follow the individual stories for it to make sense. But it, it, it is a kind of total inversion of of intuitive common sense uh, from the grand narrative. Uh, uh Of you know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in the war uh, by our understanding of the war uh that uh that if you don't follow this through with the kind of details of a case study, you just can't do this excavation layer by layer of all of these complications
1: mm-hmm. well, we've taken a lot of your time, and I will just say for the listeners, we've just really touched the surface of this this book it's a this in particular i would I would suggest you go out and read it for its wonderfully nuanced description of the various communities, the the Jewish community within the camp and and, and the relationships between the Poles and the Jews and then the Ukrainian guards and the Jews, which is a wonderful discussion or careful, thoughtful, nuanced discussion of these relationships. Um, But, Chris, I'll just end by asking you, what are you working on now?
0: Uh, I'm working on two things. One, I'm working on a kind of 25th anniversary edition of Ordinary Men. Uh, It came out in 1992 and I'm going to put out a new one with a much expanded uh, uh, illustration section as we've gotten many, many more pictures than I was able to have before photographs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it will come out with a. Uh, I won't change the text, though I may add a, a second afterward. But it, primarily, I'm going to to uh, add a lot of photographs and some discussion of of uh, of those photog- you know, of what those photographs mean to the historian, uh, and and to, to look at uh, at that aspect. And the other is that I'm working on the study of an individual American rescuer, a young American mm-hmm. in his mid-20s who ended up in, in Switzerland and in southern France working in the Vichy internment camps uh, for the YMCA and his role in, in rescuing people. So I've been working on perpetrators so long, at last, i want to work on a really good guy. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope when you're done that you'll agree to come back on New Books and Genocide Studies and and, and talk with us about it. And I wanted to say thank you so much for your time.
0: Very good. My pleasure.
1: All right. Thanks again. Have a good day. Uh, Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Christopher Browning, author of the book Remembering Survival, Inside a Nazi Slave Labor Camp. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll come back next time when I'll interview Robert Gerwarth about his recent biography of Reinhard Heydrich. If you're interested, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Until next time, I hope you have a great month.